Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. This is Steve Walsh. Hello. Our guest this week is Kevin O'Neill. Comics artist, best known for his work on 2000 AD, on Robusters and Nemesis the Warlock. His work with Pat Mills later on on Martial Law. And most recently, his work with Alan Moore on the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen series. There are 100 plus episodes on com where you can also find details to the Monsieur Non t-shirt competition, which closes on Valentine's Day. Send entries to southlondonhardcore at gmail.com. Design a t-shirt with Monsieur Non on it. Bardin artists that are listening. We're on Twitter at SLHC, Instagram at SLHC, and Facebook.com slash southlondonhardcore. to the show Kevin thank you very much so you were born in South London and grew up in South London whereabouts was that uh, I was right on the border of Chislehurst so when I grew up um, hardly anyone but if you say Mottingham people think of Nottingham they think they've something <laughs> misheard you oh, I know it it's a uh, one stop away from my sister on the train so I'm sure it is <laughs> 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 it's one stop away from everybody actually you know, it's one of those places that uh, uh, hardly anyone's ever heard of it. It's right on the Chiselhurst border, so uh, uh, me and my kid sister and my, and my older brother would go playing over Chiselhurst woods and ponds and the caves were there as well, you know. Which, uh, so it's kind of interesting. It was interesting. It was a very Catholic. It was a Catholic estate I grew up on. Went to a Catholic school, uh, St Vincent's, get over in Mottingham, and then St Thomas More's in Elton. So it's really been locked into that area for years and years. Because you're of Irish descent, aren't you? Yeah, my dad was, uh, he came over when he was like 13 to South London, uh, but never lost his Irish accent. My dad was the same thing, tr- yeah. Almost traditional, Because I think yeah. when, uh, particularly that time when Irish people moved to London, they just hung around together, didn't they? They weren't Absolutely, mixing yeah. too much with other yeah. people, so it yeah. was a thing of you're only talking to other people with Irish accents. Of course, yeah. So yeah, it's not really good. Yeah, and he was a builder, and so most of the builders were Irish anyway. My mum was sort of mixed Irish background, and she came from uh, Woolwich, and... When I was growing up, Woolwich... Actually, Woolwich informed a lot of my work um, early on because Woolwich, in the 50s, was a huge bombsite. Because my dad had um, uh, he'd been in a foreman in the Woolwich Arsenal just before the war, before he went into the army. And so Woolwich Arsenal was a prime German bomber target, so it was heavily bombed. My brother was machine-gunned in his pram. I mean, the whole street was machine-strafed by fighters and... You know, um, my mum has loads. Of, she had loads of stories about the Blitz. You know, but but she, my dad actually. I don't even know why I'm telling you this, but it's kind of curious. My dad relocated her to Tipperary to be safe with a baby, and she hated it so much being away from her mum and family. She went back to the Blitz <laughs> <laughs> and the bombs and the camaraderie, preferring that to my nan did a similar thing. My nan uh, was living in London at the start of the war and then went back to Ireland when the war right. started. But there was no work, and she missed everyone. Yeah. So she came back to London to work in uh, an arms factory. Because that oh, was, right, that yeah. was the, the yeah, work yeah. that was going on at the time. So, yeah, I think it was a, not necessarily a universal story, but it, it was a thing that happened. And it seemed to be a kind of beloved time as well. <laughs> my mum's whole... All her stories hinged around the, the Blitz, around the war, the war years. You know, it's, uh, You'd imagine uh, the strafing would sort of... <laughs> <laughs> it would bring it home to go back to Tipperary. <laughs> No straight 
But I like. I mean, I love the the bomb sites. It's really weird when um, we've shown bomb sites in the fifties in a black dossier in the league league book. Americans thought it was unbelievable. They said it's unbelievable. That many years. This is like the fifties. That many years after the war. There's still, but there's still bomb sites in London now. Yeah. Up near St Paul's, there are bomb sites. It's incredible. There's still pockets of bomb sites. And when you're a kid, you just absolutely love that because they were like swimming pools, they were old bomb buildings, and you did all these dangerous things that totally, you know, you wouldn't get away with nowadays, you know. And uh, it was all cool, you know. It's a, it's a great, a great kind of bombed-out playground to, to grow up in. And it was my idea of Limehouse as well, right? Fu Manchu, the Sax Roma stuff I read as a kid. My idea was what, what like because I've never been to Limehouse. I thought it looked like Woolwich, kind of creepy and blasted and full of weird tattoo shops and old kind of one-legged mariners, which was what Woolwich was like when I was growing up. It was quite a creepy old place. Um, but I was very disappointed when I actually researched Limehouse. I found all these old photos, period photos, and it was nothing like Woolwich. <laughs> it was actually quite respectable. And the Chinese community just sort of assimilated and it just didn't, it just didn't look like the... But of course, the line has of your imagination. So print, I made it print much legend, and that's the way to <laughs> go. You, yeah. The last thing yeah. you want to do is just copy oh, out very yeah, dull pictures. It's too disappointing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, you know, as you say, Americans, because uh, you know, Pearl Harbor aside, they weren't bombed or bombarded during the Second no. War. The, the idea of and they don't leave building standing for very long. But I mean, America, America tends to tear everything down. And yeah. It starts to get a bit dilapidated. They knock it all down, put something new up. And there's no... Whereas Britain, it's just like a coral reef, isn't it? And London is just like <laughs> one thing built on top of another. And even London Bridge passing through it tonight, I was amazed by how much Victorian bits and bobs are still there. And kind of still got soot stains and, and you know, steam engine markings and stuff <laughs> from decades of, uh, of, of being near the station. And I like that. I actually really like the way London is. You can walk through history, you know, you can walk yeah, through a period. Whereas New York, there's bits you can get an idea of what it used to be like, but not very much. Yeah. There's hardly anything. And uh, I went to Los Angeles a few years back, and uh, there's a, a well, I went to was a gas station, and it had a plaque on it because it's been up since 1967. <laughs> they, they were blown away by that. Like, That's been in the same place. But, and you're like, yes. Okay. Tesco's older than that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah uh, Woolwich is another example. Of, well, a lot of that area as well, where in the recent years there's been huge redevelopments. But mm. there does seem to be a thing in London where, you know, the, the, the Great Fire being the best example, where you get huge areas wiped out and there's a chance to reshape or reimagine it. And they go, let's just go with what we had. But just polish it's up. It's the same a footprint, bit. but yeah, it is, yeah. it's remarkable, isn't it? And the same atmosphere as well in certain parts of London retain their atmosphere. And Woolwich was a kind of a maritime, maritime munitions were a big thing. And over the, over the river in Silvertown, which was, when I was a kid, that was even creepier than Woolwich. I mean, it was very, very odd over in Silvertown. We used to go over there, and there these pubs that looked like you know, John Wayne fights every night. The kind of bar <laughs> was wrenched away from the wall and smashed up glasses everywhere. It's Incredible, you know. Um, but I found out, and also when I was a kid, when you travelled up to, to say Shooters Hill, you could smell the river. Yeah, it hit you, and which you can't do nowadays. It's so yeah, clean, yeah. you know. But, yeah. And you feel like you're actually going abroad or something when you hit the Woolwich <laughs> Ferry. Wow, this is like a day out. It's a proper going over to Silvertown. It's in a kind of kids' movie shows they put on on the uh, by the ponds there, and uh, um, I've got very fond memories of it. 
it was odd. I mean, like I said, the tattoo shops and that, they, they, it was intriguing. There was this kind of adult, weird, kind of slightly subterranean world there, and very odd looking. All the people seemed kind of strange. They Which looked kind of odd. It's like you've been able to draw on uh, <laughs> <laughs> across pretty much all of your work. Yes, that's why none of it looks like Alex Raymond, I suppose. <laughs> he obviously grew up in a much better area. You you know? just, you've been drawing uh, the people of Woolwich <laughs> to represent <laughs> aliens, monsters, and occasionally humans. Were there comics around when you were a kid? Well, the comic, it, it, was, um, it was fantastic for comics when I was a kid, really, when I think about it. Um, and Woolwich is another example. Uh, to buy American comics, uh, you, you had to go far and wide. So it's actually a cousin of mine who lived in Woolwich uh, who gave me the first, when I was probably five or six, Superman comics. And because they were colour, full colour, they looked very expensive and, and you, couldn't, you couldn't really find them anywhere. They were quite hard to find. But there were these weird... Um, different sort of news agents and there was a Martins news agent chain in South London which every six months rotated old comics through the system and you got reprints of Captain Marvel and stuff like that rotate continuous and Marvel Man books continuously rotating through and every and, um, odd reprints of a spirit and stuff they just so you'd find these little but treasure trolls you could than never them. count yeah. on them so I first saw a Spider-Man comic probably issue four or something like that and then it was like months before I found another one. And, <laughs> and I had to save my pocket money and walk for miles. And then go, going to Woolwich, the old Woolwich Ferry approach was fantastic because you walk straight down the stench of the river. The old Woolwich Ferry, which was like almost medieval, you know, with ropes and shouting and, you know, stench and everything. <laughs> but right hard by it was this shop with magazines and comics and bulldog clips and stuff that had been brought in as ballast from ships. So you had almost everything. You had all the, uh, the sweat magazines, as they called them, or true adventure magazines with Nazis roasting 60s-looking girls, you know, over fires and things. And you go and try and think, oh, God, I wonder what's inside that. Because if a cover looks like that, the inside must be absolutely <laughs> appalling or something. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's you, what they can show you. <laughs> <laughs> but it would be this big kind of tattooed guy behind the counter going, uh, son, step away from there. <laughs> Stay over there. <laughs> so it was years before I actually looked in one, and they were completely boring, of course. You know, they sold themselves on the cover. But up on the clips, they had uh, DC Comics and Marvel Comics and, and Archie and Harvey and all kinds of odds and, odds and ends. And it was a tree. I'd, I'd walk to Woolwich, because it's quite a few miles, um, to buy comics and then haul, haul them back and, uh, and look back. And there was no sense of a community, there were no conventions, or I wasn't even aware of fanzines, it was none of that stuff. But there were other kind of kids in your school who you were kind of into comics and stuff. Uh, and all the old British annuals, they'd be circulated through jumble cells, so you'd see, you could see 40s and 50s, 30s, even 20s stuff you could pick up for a few coppers. And you suddenly kind of pick up all this knowledge about, I don't know, Tiger Tim and things like that, Buffalo Bill annuals and... It, it was great. So it was like a kind of, a, I don't know, this huge education and mad paperbacks. I think mad must be the biggest influence on British uh, comic creators of all time, of our generation. Because when we bought The Son of Mad and Eyes of Mad and all those things, um, you saw Super Doof Man, you suddenly thought, God, I really want to do this. These are the <laughs> greatest comics of all time. And they were banned in our school. I mean, just having mad on the cover made them banned. <laughs> this is really, really, really bad for you. You know, so it was mad... James Bond books and <laughs> X films, you know, 
and Catholics Round and all that stuff. But a huge influence. Well, of course, with Mad as well, it's an anthology title, isn't it? So with other comics, you're getting one artist, one vision. But with Mad, you're seeing, you know, up to a dozen different artists, all of whom are brilliant. You know, at that point in particular, they just had the best artists going, working on the comic. And what I loved about it is you could go back and reread and reread and find stuff hidden in the corners, all that Bill Elder and Bollywood, all the detail. And the... um, and even if you didn't always get the American references, because they, they were set, setting up shows that were often not transmitted in Britain. I don't know how he do. He had no idea. But he <laughs> kind of looks at it. That's pretty weird. and It's quite funny. Um, so that was terrific. And, and of course, Bollywood drew all these very sexy girls as well. So I think that added to its being on the kind of banned list. You know, we weren't <laughs> cleavage or anything. <laughs> but it's also an odd time for. I mentioned this to people. It's an odd time for British comics because in the late fifties probably from the early 50s to late 50s, certainly when I recall, um, because it was ex-servicemen creating comics, they had this serviceman sensibility. So you would see, see these strange scenes in like a, a Paddy Payne type comic strip um, of men in bars with obvious hookers in split <laughs> dresses yeah, standing yeah. around and, and sort of hustling. And it's, quite, it's actually quite odd when you look back on it. That's really strange, but they were just drawing what they remembered (laughs) and it was so innocent in those days no one really took any notice of it it was just left alone and then years later it became incredibly strict you couldn't do anything anything there's hardly any women have appeared after a certain point just because it was combustible Uh, but uh, it was was an interesting time and we all just uh, um, any of my contemporaries we had more or less the same experience scattershot American comics really catching up a lot of old weird British stuff Plus the Valium and all those things at the current. That's in the American stuff. Well. There was no distribution. It does seem like the story was if you were near docks or anywhere places were being delivered, that was the, the, the golden spot to be in. Yeah. Because as you say, they turn up just as part of packaging materials and no one really knew. Yeah, it was literally ballast. They, they sent over American comics as ballast. In fact, when I started in uh, comics, I was told to get out almost immediately. I went to see. Uh, um, the uh, editor of TV comic who said, you're wasting your time, son, you're wasting your time. I was American comics, you're right, they come over as ballast, they're, got, they're not worth anything, the whole business is, is being replaced, you know, television's replaced comics, there's no future, get out. And that was like um, 1970. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it does seem uh, comics has been sort of written off and had its death foretold almost since it was invented. As far back as I can remember, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. always been written off and it's... Everything new that comes along is writing off comics. So, I mean, he probably had it in radio movies and then, uh, yeah, television was a big one. Video, video games. Video games, yeah. You know, uh, I don't know. The inter- I mean, almost everything is writing off comics, but it just persists, doesn't it? Because, I mean, it is just an elegantly simple medium. It is just so straightforward. And, it, and it's more or less done the same way as it's been done for more than 100 years or so. Is what I like. And you can do them on your own. You can do them as fanzines as well. Absolutely, yeah. Like, anyone can, can do a comic. Yeah. It's very hard to do a movie. <laughs> it's very, very difficult. Or to do television, but you can do a comic. Yeah. You, know? you get one piece of paper, you fold it in half, you've got yeah. four pages. Yeah. You've got a, a, a cover, and uh, you can do two yeah. pages of story. Off you go. Well, that's why, like, in, the, in, in the early days as well, when we were doing fanzines, actually, the biggest shift was probably when uh, photocopiers come in. Uh, affordable photocopying. Because if you imagine before that, uh, I remember IPC, when I was very young I had a photocopy I swear to God it was like as big as this room it was gigantic it had to be operated <laughs> by a special man you go and hand in the pages and they'd write it in a book 
Well, there's a scene in uh, Mad Men, the TV series, where they get their first photocopier, and oh, they, spend, they spend half the episode trying to work out where to put it, because it's, <laughs> it's like, as you say, the size of a room, they're like, I don't know where this is going to go, and it is this, it, it, essentially, uh, like a premium press, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, but when, when, when um, I mean, in the early days, but actually, but I, we actually went to proper printers, I remember that, because it was before photocopying became common on the high street. So you'd go to a printer, and if you had a bit of downtime, they'd run off your fanzine for you. I remember the one night, one I went to in Brixton when I was living there. Um, it was a poor guy. He'd um, he'd turned down time out. They offered a deal when they were first started <laughs> to go fifty fifty with him, and he thought it was a bit of a risk. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone now, I imagine. Yes. <laughs> hard to hard to bounce back from that. The man who turned down time out. And my boss at IPC, uh, one of my boss at IPC also turned down Viz. Right. You know, they're always turning down stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's a job in a gun a bit, but I can remember talking about turning down stuff. Because um, I was doing a, a fanzine about the film business, about special effects. I wanted to be Ray Harryhausen always, because there was, wasn't really any magazines about that stuff then. So I was just using my fanzine as an excuse to go and meet people and talk to them about um, But... Uh, um, I got to know a lot of people around, around this area, around Wardour Street. So I'd go into the different film company, and they're all very friendly in those days, the early 70s. Uh, they'd give you stills for movies, and they'd contacts and producers and people, and they didn't care. There's any publicity, was something to them. Um, so you cut to a few years later, sort of 1976, when we were just beginning to do 2018, and I got a phone call offering me the poster magazine writes to Star Wars. Yeah. Um, exclusive. Yeah. In Britain. And I didn't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> so I offered it to IPC. My boss is there. And they said, no. <laughs> I said, oh, no, no. He's one shot to a dead loss, a dead loss. Well, because it's pre-release, isn't it? Because yeah. it's a year before it comes out. Absolutely, and... yeah. No one, no one was to know. No yeah. one wants to know, you know, but it just sounds ludicrous now. Cause I, whoever did it, it was probably someone like Felix Dennis, who was wise and shrewd, you yeah. know, who would take a punt, but like he did on Bruce Lee, which made his fortune, you know. But yeah, no one was, no one was to know, and uh, and it was a kind of an odd time. It was, it was just before merchandising, before things were really big. Well, Star Wars that sort of gave birth to merchandising. Yeah, that's really the, that's big. the game changer, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And everyone's looking for the next Star Wars, but because there's obviously famously the moment where the film's running slightly over budget, and George Lucas cuts the deal where he's like, "I won't. I'll just take the merchandising rights. I won't take this cut. I won't take that." That's right. And makes you know leaves behind millions to make billions, and keeps the rights as well. Yeah, it's very, very, very rare, isn't it? Yeah, it's. uh, But yeah, so it's a funny. It's a funny old company, IPC. I mean, I, I kind of loved it in those days because they were big. I think they were the biggest publisher in the world. Well, that's where you started working in comics, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. I went to an interview, and my uh, Jack LeGrand, uh, the boss of Fleetway, uh, was a great character. He was an East End, a real old East End character, who'd um, fought at the Battle of Arnhem. Almost everyone was from the military, uh, the older generation, had all been in the war. And, but his dad was the editor of, um, I think, Illustrated Chips. So it's like a kind of right. comic dynasty. Yeah, going yeah. Through right when he was like an office boy. Before the war, it's one of the and, first uh, comics, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So he kind of took pity on me um, with my poor qualifications, <laughs> but, but incredible enthusiasm, and uh, gave me an office boy job. So, so I started as office boy on Buster, which was just a, a 
office boy job. I mean, it doesn't, does it even exist anymore, office boy? It sounds like something from, suppose from the old days. I suppose intern would be intern, the obvious yeah. That sounds a lot better, though, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's kind of worse, isn't it? It sounds better, but it's a worse job. Yes. <laughs> Were you so, already drawing at that point? I, I was drawing, yeah. I was, uh, I was drawing from as far back as I can remember. In fact, my uh, it started with my brother, who doesn't really draw, but he's 13 years older than me, and I can remember him drawing... A, he was a teddy boy back in the day. He could draw a continuous line silhouette of himself smoking a, a cigarette, you know, with his teddy boy sideburns and all that stuff. And when I was a little kid, I think that was magic, just yeah, his yeah. face. And I think that's the knob of it. That was what made me want to draw. And then it was kind of films, King Kong and stuff like that, Famous Monsters magazine. I was kind of into films and Disney animation and Tex Avery and Chuck Jones stuff. And my, my first inclination which was completely abortive, was to go into animation. This is at 15, 16. And I rang up um, Harrison Batchelor, the only name I knew in Britain who made uh, animation, uh, did animation. And it was John Hallis himself who answered the phone. And he said, what experience do you have? And I said, none. And he said, well, we only have experienced people here. And I said, well, where'd you get the experience? He said, here. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> like the only place, you know. And I met him, and he, he knocked me back. I met him years later at a Luca uh, festival, and I told him that story. And he said, oh, the people we knocked back. He said, they for a great <laughs> list of, of people we knocked back, because they just didn't, they couldn't accommodate them. They were the only game in town, you know. But uh, So I, my, my next thing was comics, and I wanted to work for Oddams, who did uh, Smash and Wham and Pow. Those comics, I thought they were fantastic. They were kind of, you know... They're edgy. Quite anarchic. Like, yeah, very anarchic. To yeah. Sort of compared to Fleetway, yeah, compared yeah. to even the, the, what, what a Beano had become. Um, and when I rang him up, it's really nice. I got transferred eventually around to some really nice woman in, in, the, in the women's magazine department. And she said, oh, no, 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 we sold our comics to uh, IPC. I'll give you a name. And she gave me Sid Bicknell's name, and he was the editor of Valiant. So for a long-winded way, I ended up phoning from one of those old phone boxes, putting <laughs> tiny bits in and stuff, you know. And eventually got an interview, and I went up there, and I just um, kind of begged for a job. <laughs> really. But it was great. And the honest thing was, when I first started, and they started to give me little art jobs to do, I was pasting up uh, Billy Bunter strips and looking at them thinking, you know, I remember reading this when I was a kid. And it was old then. <laughs> it was probably a reprint then because everyone's wearing spats. It was just really bizarre, you know. <laughs> Were you doing the illustrations for the fanzines? Or was it purely... I was doing it, yeah. Because yeah. when I started, there was uh, Deskin and uh, Steve Moore, Steve Parker. So they were all working up there on uh, Bob Paints around the human department. So there was Wizard and Chips, Core, all those sort of things. Um, and you had a lot of those guys, that were way, they were years ahead of me, and, but... There was a kind of camaraderie of people interested in comics, which IPC didn't like. They just didn't like. If you were in comics, you weren't to be interested. You, <laughs> you saw that as a stepping stone to shoot or Woman's Realm or something, but no, you don't stay there. You know, you don't want to actually do it. So they just thought we were a load of freaks, and because everyone was long-haired and hippie as well, that made it even worse. All the old timers, the military guys, absolutely hated us. They just hated us. Yeah, I mean, as a generation yeah. gap goes, that's got to be the most extreme. It was a, a colossal gap. Because, yeah. you know, you've got, as you say, the old generation, it's not just the old generation, but they served in a war. And yeah. it was, you know, it's that famous scene from, you know, I, I fought in a war for you. And then they saw what came next, and it was, why are these people going there? <laughs> this is not what I fought for. 
Yeah, there was a, an, an incredible animosity towards students as well. Some of the building, you could see the student marches out the windows, and they've got them all going. And some of these guys they had terrible wars as well. Some of them thought, um, thought the Japanese. They seem to be the most scarred, actually, the guys who fought the Japanese, because some of them, in the early 70s, Japanese tourists had just started to appear in London. It's probably the first point where they felt secure enough to actually come over. It made these guys so angry. They were so furious, they just couldn't bear it. And, yeah. Uh, um, so, yeah, so, yeah, there was this giant gulf. But uh, uh, Steve Morris, Steve Parkhouse were doing fanzines. Their skin was doing fancy advertiser, I think, back in those days. So it was a natural thing to do. Everyone just did fanzines. That's what you do. And then they were circulating underground comics as well. You get to see them. And everything looked more interesting than what we were working on. Which was, <laughs> fuck, I mean, wizard and ships. That was, <laughs> that was hell. That was absolutely <laughs> It was like a, a nightmare thing to work on. It was so miserable. Buster was the first comic I loved as a child. Yeah, well, actually, I read... When I was a kid, I bought the first issue of Buster when, when, uh, as a kid. You know, right, when it yeah, first yeah. came up and it was big and it had... Son of Handicap. That was the original showing. premise, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Until Reg Smythe saw it through <laughs> a gasket, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I love I love Buster. And it was fun. And, uh, the number of phone calls we got with parents ringing up saying, where can I buy uh, a Buster cap? Yeah, yeah. Oh, we don't do those. And I remember someone saying, well, maybe we should. <laughs> we get thousands of phone calls about this stuff, you know. Um, but Buster was fun. But Wizard and Trips just seemed to be, uh, it wasn't, Leo Baxson, though, it wasn't Ken Reed, and, and yet they had those guys working for them, doing adulterated versions of their great stuff, and they were still doing good stuff, but it was like the best stuff in a, a raw deal, you know, and, yeah. uh, uh, but funny enough, I, I never knew them when I was working there, but Pat Mills and John Wagner were writing for Wizard and Chips and hating it, and writing whole <laughs> issues, I think that's how they got in, they wrote a whole issue of Core or Wizard and Chips or something, and by the time you got around to Oddball and uh, Sid Snake, you, you are pretty demoralised, you know. Because, <laughs> <so. laughs> I mean, w- with any of those sort of strips, it's essentially the same premise and a lot of times the same story over and over. So there's only so many spins you can put yeah. on it before you're just sort of literally going through the motions and just... I've said this many times, but it was described by the boss there um, as a sausage machine. You know, you, just put the, you put a script in one end... And a comic comes out the other, and that's <laughs> that was how it was seen. And it was seen as remarkable they could keep these things going because uh, some chips and monster fun—they're all knockoffs of each other. And whatever was popular on TV, you had Horonation Street, you know, Beast, <laughs> Beast Enders, and Monster <laughs> Fun. It was, and the uh, twelve and a half p Biotonic Boy, which was the most convoluted, <laughs> you know, parody of a six million dollar man. Uh, twelve and a half p, and you've got so. Um, it was very odd. It was very odd because it was humourless. The humour department was the most humourless place in IPC. You know, it was. Depressing. And that's how they liked it. <laughs> yes, preferably the less <laughs> the less laughter the better. Yes. It's, uh, so you started off as an office boy. So I imagine at that point it's basically you're just running around grabbing. You know, if they need things it, from. Well, actually, it was it's like working in a bordello because it's handing out soap and towels to the editor. <laughs> 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 that's how long ago it was. In fact, when I started. They, they, it, which was in Fleetway House in uh, Farringdon Street, um, which, which they'd taken over the old Amalgamated Press. The Amalgamated Press did Sexton Blake, all those. So it's a long history. All the bound volumes were going back decades, you know. So they bought, it was a huge company formed of smaller companies. Um, 
but they were burning artwork when I started. They'd gone down <laughs> to the, uh, the vaults, which are regularly flooded by the River Fleet. Um, it just kind of come up through Farringdon Street periodically. And they were getting kind of fed up with it, so they started burning artwork. <laughs> Actually, it sounds it, well, it was appalling, it was terrible. They didn't offer it to the VNA or anybody who might have wanted it. I just looked down there and thought, do you know that Laurel and Hardy film fun artwork? We're never going to use that again. <laughs> in the boiler. In the bo- and Dennis Gifford, who was a writer on uh, comics, um, he heard about it and he created quite a fuss in the, in the paper. So he stopped burning. So then he just went on to neglect. Which <laughs> 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 was using it to stuff up the drains that were kind of overflowing and things. But it, it, they did have a kind of old attitude. It was just um, turnover. Yeah, you had no long-term comic readers. Twelve was a kind of cut-off. Anything beyond that was a delinquent, and we don't want their money. Students, we definitely don't want their money. They're trouble. They can just get lost, you know. So that was the attitude, and it was very hard to shift until people like Pat Mills and John Wagner came along and just did different comics because you couldn't turn the old ones around. It was impossible. They were set in stone. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you had to kind of do new stuff. And obviously, two thousand AD was a great example of that just sort of yeah. completely reworking what you know using a lot of the elements of traditional British comics you know uh, the same characters appearing uh, regularly right. um, it's an anthology lots of different creators but the attitude being completely different yeah and you had that kind of weather shift in the 70s as well with films so when you had like Straw Dogs Get Cards or The Devils all those films one after another Wild Bunch was sort of 1969 um that informed a lot of things. Um, people felt differently about what you could... Well, they felt differently about what you could show IPC, just as long as it didn't cause too much fuss. It, as long as it made money and it didn't get any of the other magazines taken off the stands, they were kind of okay. But if it looked like the retailers were up in arms, and they were usually got up in arms by The Guardian in those days. The Guardian would have these... You know, it shows you how slow news was when The Guardian would find action action offensive and we go and ask someone from a trade union to comment, to comment. <laughs> what a bizarre what a bizarre thing you know, oh, just, I haven't seen it it's disgusting you know? <laughs> burn it shut it down and burn it and everyone involved in it <laughs> yeah it was action that got the first sort of controversy isn't it with uh, the sort of hooligan strips and hook jaw and all those sort of yeah, it was, it was like, a, it's a kind of pre-video nasty, comic video nasty. It was before video, but um, the merciful thing was for 2000 AD was we had some trouble, but then videos come in, and video nasties absorbed all the heat from the press. They lost interest in comics kind of after that. It's been hardly anything, has it, really? I mean, yeah. not to the same degree. Where on like, Nationwide used to, I mean, they had Frank Boff tearing up comics action on Nationwide, you know. You know, it's yeah, it's quite interesting. Rather than technology it. supplanting comics, it sort of caused a distraction. The <laughs> <laughs> let comics just sort of like, yeah, we can, we can do what we want now. We're never going to do anything as bad as. <laughs> we're not doing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we're fine. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know when their parents started. They must have started big, getting up in arms at some point in the 60s, because when I started, there was, there were kind of, there was a house rule book on grammar, um, and you couldn't have Clint and Flick. Um, you know, it's a, I mean, there were all these rules about what words you could, could and couldn't use because of problems with lettering running together and stuff like that. There's nothing about artwork or storytelling. There's no rules at all about that, none whatsoever. It was all uh, the words. But then you had um, 
for a few years, I guess it had been firework issues, where like the eager beavers would be pushing, I don't know, fireworks for an old lady's letterbox. And that was seen as actually quite bad. <laughs> it's not something you really want to... And I remember famously, I think on Valiant, there was a cartoon strip showing kids using a, a refrigerator as a spaceship. And all a band's a refrigerator on a dump, but they were getting inside it, closing the lid, pretending it was a spaceship. <laughs> well, it's kind of coincided with a lot of unfortunate accidents <laughs> out there as well. Um, and when 2008 started, uh, the uh, Mac 1, the kind of Bionic Man sort of knockoff, um, we were getting letters from parents as well about that. About the accidents, the kids were having coffee because they're jumping out windows. The, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm Mac One. You're not. <laughs> <laughs> you're a very silly boy. <laughs> so, um, when you started working on 2080, that was you moving from the humour titles over to the sort of the action side of things. Was that was that something you requested, or were you? Uh, Picked out by Pat Mills? Oh uh, yeah, well I asked for. I mean, what what happened was I well, I went freelance uh, for a couple of years. So I was doing colour guides and uh, some some artwork, but I wasn't making enough money. I was about to get married, and there was a job going on Monster Fun. I was asked if I wanted to go on the, the art stuff. And I thought, oh god, you know, this is, <laughs> <laughs> oh no. So I was on Monster Fun, and it was quite depressing. Um, no, no. Ironically, <laughs> <laughs> monstrous fun. <laughs> but um, I heard about this publication that was causing a bit of a, a, a new thing, a new project called JMP13, Juvenile New Publication Number 13. That's just had its code name, intriguingly. But I heard it's going to be science fiction. Oh, God, that sounds really interesting. So I kind of, kind of wangled an interview with the guys who were doing it, and I got interviewed by uh, Pat Mills, and I showed him a uh, fans and I've done Mech Memoirs, which is a kind of robot strip thing, and got the job, got the, the kind of uh, art assistant job. And the art editor was Jan, Janet Shepard, who was my kind of mentor when I started at IPC. She was the uh, art editor of um, Valiant, and very, very well respected at IPC. She was very, very good. But And I never knew this at the time, but actually I found out in recent years, she worked for Len Miller and Son on... Uh, um, who published uh, Marvel Man right, yeah, and, and uh, Captain Marvel. So she would have been doing pay stuff back in the 50s, which, which I wish I'd known. I'd actually love to have asked her about those, those old days. But um, the minute we started on 2008, it's obviously it's going to be a lot of fun. And it annoyed every... Because we we'd moved to Kingsreach Town, uh, as in uh, Waterloo, and it was all open plan. Before, it was all closed off funny old offices, but now it's open plan. And you get these kind of... <laughs> I, can remember, I can picture them now, these kind of meerkat-like heads bobbing up above the <laughs> petition from all the other comics going, what they're swearing, they're laughing, they're swearing, they're laughing. Bing, 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 they pop all over the place. And uh, Pat Mills paid slightly more for lettering and uh, stuff like that in, in the other departments. It caused friction. But I think it was seen as something that wouldn't last very long. It'd go in the way of action. It, oh, we're going to cause a lot of trouble. Um, it's going to be very violent. You get taken off the stands, we'll get the sack. And uh, um, I've told this many times. The first press day was me reattaching heads to bodies. That's the first press day. Was <laughs> Christmas Eve, '76, when everyone else was drunk in a building. They were like, "Oh, you're still working, are you?" And I was sticking another arm back on a body. From, <laughs> kind of violent. We, we were just told flat out, "You cannot do it. You cannot do it like that." And it's possibly the best thing that happened to 2000 because it, it was a sort of science fiction action uh, in conception. 
But when the violence was toned down, it had to be replaced by something else, and then the satire right. became much, much more important. And the kind of covert stuff and the um, the dropping and all that. Of course, which, yeah. um, I mean, Encoding all the sort of transgressions. The, uh, the boss there, John Sanders, he, he was actually quite playful. He'd say, oh, dropping... Oh, that sounds like something else. No, 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 John, no, no. Just futuristic words, you know. <laughs> and he kind of knew, he just sort of let it, he let it go. So it was, it, it was okay. They kind of, they played out the rope management. That was how it, how it worked, you know. And so we went too far. After Pat had gone, we, we just went too far. That's that, that, that way. And we had the problems with Judge Dredd with the, uh, the Jolly Green Giant. Yes. Where his owner's... And uh, Burger King and, and McDonald's? Well, actually, the, uh, McDonald's and Burger King never, ever contacted us, right. but figuring that they would, <laughs> <laughs> it was a, it was agreed among the management that that stuff would never, ever be reprinted, which is a great shame, because it was very, very good and very funny. Just to go back to the, the start of 2018, you did um, the image of Tharg on the cover of Prog 1. I did, yeah, under the, uh, under the space spinner. Yeah, it was... Um, and I... I did the first Future Shock as well. Just to um, ask about Tharg as well, like if you drew the first Tharg on the first 2008, did you design him as well? Or? I did. Well, design is perhaps being over generous, Steve. You know, it's, um, <laughs> it's iconic it's, design. Um, it's one of the most famous designs well, in British culture. What it could have been. I mean, um, Tharg, we were talking in the office about what we didn't want because well, we all absolutely hated the. Um, the uncle editor character, you know, it was like in Valiant, it was the, the editor was like this kindly uncle, patronising old bastard who, you know, <laughs> doled out postal orders for five shillings if you're lucky and you spelled everything correctly. It was kind of really depressing. So we thought, um, um, well, we kind of like the American, the American stuff, the Tales from the Crypt, and the kind of host character seemed much more interesting. You could have fun with it. Um, but all the, in the office, all these, these strange words going around, I mean, Borag and Splundig and stuff. It's, it was Kelvin Gosnell, I think, who was assistant to Pat. But we're all kind of throwing these words in, just using around the... And they annoyed our next-door neighbours as well, <laughs> which was Buster. That's uh, how you know it works. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but we were talking about the editor, and I think they, Pat and Kelvin generically refer to all aliens as Thargs. I've no idea why, uh, but they did. So he was going to be called Tharg. And because I've done all these interviews over the years with special effects and makeup people, I said, oh, great, I'll get, um, I know some makeup guys, we can get someone from BBC, one of the Doctor Who guys, to do it for us. And then I said, well, how much money can I offer? Well, (laughs) 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 actually, there was no money. I do see we're not going to spend a penny, but it was a petty cash allowance. So me and Kelvin Gosnell, we went out into Covent Garden and we found. uh, a, ne- a Neanderthal, un- an unpainted Neanderthal mask, um, which we brought back. That used up all the money. That the money was gone. <laughs> <laughs> that was gone. That was gone. G- Gina Hart, who did, was in the colouring department, provided the Rosetta Sirius, which was a brooch. It would be an <laughs> alarm to hear. And her sister provided um, the hairpiece. Right. And Kelvin provided the suit, uh, the kind of shelf suit, I guess it was. In a, Exactly. Well, it wasn't a motorcycle outfit, was it? It was a kind of that sort of bands. It was yeah, like a, a sort of bodysuit, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so he provided that, and, and that was it. That was all we had. And um, went out and got some, and then I painted. I painted the markings on his face and trying to kind of pull the bits together. Um, 
and it was just cobbled together. Right. And so it, was it wasn't a, a drawing that you did that they had to replicate the outfit. It was an no. outfit that was made and you had to then draw it. I right. got a Neanderthal mask. I thought, what the hell are we going to do with this? It just, <laughs> I'm just looking at it. And we, we all thought it looked like William Shatner. For some <laughs> <laughs> like I'm all floppy and empty. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm insulting to the poor man, isn't it? <laughs> but um, we, we did the best we could with it. And, it. and it didn't look too bad in photo. I think the only time it was embarrassing was years later, or a few years later, when the tube did a... Uh, a TV piece from King's Reach Tower and uh, Paula Yates, it might be Paula Yates, but she was certainly up there. I think she interviewed Tharg and it was, it just looked terrible. You can see Tharg's hair sticking. Yeah. yeah, it's not it, designed for... Uh, big. I mean, it just, it don't was, look closely at the Tharg outfit. No, it was, it, was, it was a shocker. It was an absolute, <laughs> absolute shocker. But uh, yeah, we did the best we could and, and but we realised the editorials made Tharg um, and the kids started writing using the language he used so it, was, it, it caught on really, really quickly. Um, and I say kids because in the early the first three issues put older readers off I, I heard some of them was at parties yeah it looked interesting but it had a free gift that sounds it's really childish but from issue four or five we started getting letters from older readers the dreaded students you know <laughs> and um, and even then we, there was some, we couldn't publish them I remember that now because we paid for letters and they felt that you cannot give students Ten shillings or fifty pound <laughs> postal order. These are for children. It, 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 oh, man, it was an uphill struggle. Yeah, we, wanted, yeah. we wanted to have a lively letters page, and there's no way you could do it with just little kids. Just kids writing. Yeah. Um, so we just said, what well, do best we could, you know. But it, it, it took years. I think it took me years to get 2000 AD away from that mindset. You know, by the time I'd long gone anyway. So <laughs> didn't really care, you know. <laughs> Well, you, you're there, as you're saying, you're doing uh, Future Shocks, and you did some, some Tharg strips as well. I did some odds and ends, yeah. Um, what I always thought was, the Tharg thing, we did, we did very little of it. We thought that went a long way. And when we stopped, uh, uh, John Magnan and Alan Grant were very keen on taking it further. So he elaborated it, and I, I thought somehow that was too much. They did so much with him. They did so many strips on the dictators as rag and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Which we only mentioned, it's just... It couldn't, I don't think it could bear the weight of interest that they showed. <laughs> 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 they were a bit too good for it, really. Um, but, you know, everyone had their different ideas of what 2008 should be by that point. You know, And there was a lot of um, rancour in the, in the office about what, it, what the content should be. There was always problems. We were always in trouble. Always in trouble. <laughs> you know? I mean, Nemesis of Warlock was uh, just constant trouble. I just remember nothing. Well, Nemesis of Warlock sort of came out of an argument with editorial, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It came out of. Uh, I did a roadjaw strip with Pat Mills. We were chased down a, a tube system, and we'd spent uh, six pages on this big. We wanted to like a seventies car chase. We wanted to do some, something elaborate, and the managing editor said. If it if it had, had more time to have it redrawn, he would have uh, thrown it all away. But it was so late, <laughs> being me, it was so late. <laughs> he had no option but to run it. Um, and we just thought, oh, that bastard. You know, we <laughs> so we devised a whole strip <laughs> around the tube system. And it became, and it was, again, it was a complete accident. Nemesis was not designed um, as a whole piece. It was just kind of accidentally... Yeah, Nemesis into and Tor Commando you know. end up as the two characters in this chase yeah. in a short story, yeah. but then you expanded upon that. And, and the original idea was to make the we just thought it'd be fun to have the a really ugly alien 
as a good guy and all the humans as a bad guy, bad guys. And um, we were talking about it and I said, well, the only way if you, to look at it dead on, the only way to make the humans instantly recognisable as evil is to give them clansmen's hoods or Inquisition costumes because <laughs> everybody knows they're bad. There's not going to be any argument about if a human race are all wearing clansmen <laughs> outfits, something's gone seriously wrong, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, it gets great that. And then Torquemada, that's, I think, perhaps a lapsed Catholic like me, so it grew out, grew out of interest in the, in the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a sort of blend of Nazism, the Ku Klux Klan... Yeah. The Spanish Inquisition, just like yeah. humanity's greatest evils, yeah. <laughs> into, into all of humanity. <laughs> so yeah, as you say, easy to work out who the, the bad guys are. Exactly, yeah. And we, we had a lot of fun with it, and we had a lot of fun with talk, talk with Martin. The more outrageous he was, the more popular. And it just it just geed us up. We'd go a bit further and a bit further, and then they'd go, oh, God, this is a... You know, they'd be a poor... Management hated it. They absolutely hated it. Because they didn't understand it. They knew we were... They were saying, we, we know you're getting away with something, but we haven't <laughs> spotted what it is yet. <laughs> hmm. uh, the other uh, ship you worked on with Pat Mills on 2008 was Robusters. That was... Yeah, that was a robot. Well, when 2008 started, apparently Pat had said, there's not going to be any bloody robots in, in this <laughs> comic because he hated Robot Archie. Robot Archie goes well, way back to the 50s, and it was... Um, even When I was a kid, I hated it as well because... It was the only robot strip, but he wasn't like a proper sentient robot. He had these two prats who go around with a remote control <laughs> box, making him walk and talk. And I think, well, that's really disappointing, isn't it? You wanted him just to be marching about yeah, his own man, you know? Um, so it wasn't, it was just very disappointing. So Pat said, no robots. But I showed him the robot thing I'd done, and I said, well, look, we can, we can do other stuff with robots. And he, and he suddenly becomes the robot writer, you know, he's <laughs> the man to go to, you know, for robots. He kind of got into it. And then we, we just rather sneakily, but we could have robots blowing up. We could have arms and legs flying off. Oh, no, this is quite good, isn't it? <laughs> so he just got more and more manic until, again, the management just said, oh, yeah, we, they were wise to us. They were wise to what we were up to. So we throw back, then you creep it up a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> um, as you went on as well, you sort of became more involved in the arts editorial side of things as well you you become the uh not artistic director what would be the title well it's kind of be uh, jan um i was offered the art kind of raised to become the art director of um well, art editor of startled startled was uh um like an upmarket knockoff for 2000 ad which is the way ipc thought 2000 ad was successful we'll do a knockoff and eventually we'll roll one into the other we don't really care which which one it is we'll merge them um and I didn't want to, I, I loved 2000 AD so much, I didn't want to move. So Jan Shepard told me I was a very silly boy, a silly boy. <laughs> it's a great opportunity, you know. So she moved to, to Star-Lord, and I, I became art editor of 2000. And then we were kind of just kind of left to get on with it, which is when the Jolly Green Giant stuff happened. And, you know, <laughs> Your watch. You know, my watch. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we just, we kind of ran, we had a lot of fun, we just laughed, we laughed our ass, and we lived and breathed it as well, after work, we just, um, we just talked, talked, talked 2000 AD, but eventually, of course, the, the uh, happy days were over, and it, it, it just became torturous, going to management every week, and getting these ludicrous art alterations to do, I got sick of it, so I just went freelance. Was it while you were uh, art editor that the credit cards came in? Yes, yeah. yeah, I did the credit cards, yeah. Well, that was another one. That was a big 
bone of contention in the early days. There was a credit, if you look at the very early issues, uh, Massimo Bellardinelli has a credit on Dan Dare. Dan Dare, oh God, I hated that strip so much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we just couldn't win on Bloody Day. I think as Pat said, if it was called anything else, it would have been quite popular, but we were stuck with having to put Dan Dare in. Well, Dan Dare only worked in the 50s, early 60s. It's almost impossible to do anything with now, and the name is, unless you're doing a retro thing, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of Spitfire pilot fantasy stuff of Britain in a space race and going to Mars and Venus. And it's very hard to make it work. But anyway, the way we try to do it, or, or uh, it was before I arrived, what they tried to do was, what if David Bowie was Dan Dare? <laughs> and you kind of bolted all these bits together, and you give it to his kind of crazy Italian artist. It was very good, Bellardinelli. But anyway, he, he agreed to do it if he could have a credit. So he had an art credit for him, no one else. Right. It was the same as like, my first job in comics was whiting out signatures. That was my absolutely first job. That was always the thing, wasn't it? They, they didn't want yeah. uh, no credits, kids no. to get attached to creators because then it no. gives creators power, doesn't it? That's the thing. Absolutely, yeah. You, know, so you get letters know. coming in and people are, are buying it on the yeah. basis of the talent yeah. and the talent suddenly have... And, and they knew who was popular. They knew yeah. a certain prime artist, but they didn't want them to know. It's <laughs> 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 a very, very bad thing. Um, and also, they had this ludicrous idea that rival companies would steal them. You know, rival companies knew who they were anyway. Yeah. You know, and, and they were stealing each other's creators. But um, anyway, I, I, when we were left to our own devices in this kind of weird time, um, I devised this credit card thing, this kind of jokey thing, and stuck them on a whole issue, and with some trepidation went round to the managing editor, and he came back. Bob, I mean, Bob Bartholomew, the man who famously folded the eagle, sat Frank Bellamy. You know, he's a big proud, big proud man. Um, <laughs> he said, "Oh yes, yes, no problem. What are these things? What are these?" Things? <laughs> oh, it's just a bit of fun, Bob. We're running for a couple of weeks. The kids don't like them. We'll drop them. Oh, fine, fine. <laughs> that's, that's how we, we sneak them in. Um, that was good. It was a good day's work. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It yeah. was. Because uh, you did get a lot more letters about, about individual people, and it made people feel better about doing their work as well. But it was also a, a, a cultural shift, wasn't it? It became mm. then the default thing for yeah. artists and writers to be credited yeah. in the comics, which, you know. Which hasn't rolled backwards, has it? No, yeah. It's, 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 it's a, permanent, a permanent thing. But there's always a big difference between British and American comics. And Marvel, the great thing when you were a kid, when you first saw those books, was it felt like a lot of fun reading yeah. them because you knew and they were kind of kind of jovial about... The, the bouncing bullpen, wasn't it? It yeah. was the whole thing of exactly, you got yeah. to know the creators as characters themselves. Yeah. And, and there was no sense in IPC comics that the different comics even spoke to each other or there was any relationship or anything like that. It was these little fiefdoms across... Uh, uh, across the department, the closest you had was Wizard and Chips, where you had like two comics in one comic, and there was this like fake rivalry between the two. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it was. Yeah, kids and chip heights. And chip heights. Yeah. But yeah, even then, it sort of it's you liked sort of it, didn't you, Steve? You liked it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. It's okay. Confess. You know. <laughs> um, another interesting artistic thing. We did an episode about sort of South London comics and comics in South London uh, a while ago. And we talked about 2000 AD, obviously, with it being located in South London. Right. And one of the things that we talked about and loved was the conceit of Tharg's nerve centre being at the top of this office block and the office block actually secretly being a spaceship. 
that you'd yes. occasionally see being launched off. You know, every so often there'd be a thing where Farg had to escape or he'd have it ready to go. Where did that come from? Was that well, a... I thought it was brilliant. It was in place when I started. Um, I, I started a few months after they'd begun work. I mean, Pat had a huge, or a long lead time. You had to make like a year to develop 2080. It was very, very unusual. It almost never happened again, I wouldn't have thought. But um, uh, I think it might be Doug Church, this kind of a crazy, roving art editor who worked at IPC. Uh, Kingsbridge Tower was a new building, but we all more or less just moved in there. And it, looking at it, it looked like a still from a towering inferno or something. It, <laughs> it, looked, it looked quite impressive for those days. Um, so I think it was Doug who suggested it, and it was in the, the TV ad. I don't know, I mean, it's probably on YouTube, the old... I think it is about it. on YouTube, yeah, I think I, we found I th- it at the time, I, yeah. I think there is a kind of, probably a crappily done 10 by 8 photo of <laughs> King's Reach Tower shooting off into space. Um, but it was a great conceit, and, and we used to occasionally get kids turn up um, who wanted to come up and see Tharg's control, <laughs> control room, much <laughs> more disappointment, you know. <laughs> There's no art drawings wandering around. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great idea, and it, was, and it just... And I think it was it actually was Doug Church who um, who named um, a mega city as well, Judge Dredd. Right. It was his idea to have a, a mega city all linked up cities becoming one big mega city in America. So he he, he was coming up with a lot of stuff, yeah. but everyone was throwing ideas in. It, it was a, a heady a heady old time. And then when you had people like, um, who I knew from a little earlier, like Dave Gibbons and Brian Bolland, who worked on Power Man for South Africa and things like that. Everyone was in their kind of twenties and was eager to to break out, you know, because there was nowhere British comics. There was nowhere to really go. Um, the same creators did the same strips for years and years, and the only way in would be if you could ghost them. So you had to do a house style. You had to ma- kind of match Mike West and Eric Bradbury, all these very good artists, but there were no new styles coming in. And if there was anything new, it was foreign because it was cheap. Yeah, and they had these. Fantastic artists on the girls' comics that they got from South America and Italy and Spain, who they were paying, you know, relatively low rates to, but it was big money for them at the exchange rate and getting brilliant artwork, better than anything we could do. It's just absolutely astonishing, you know. It's, uh, um, but what what I think we brought to it was it brought it back to being British, yeah, as well the sensibility that's and. The um, thing, isn't it? Also, some of that kind of flavour of American comics, and also can't underestimate uh, underground comics as well. I brought a big stack in to show uh, Pat and Kelvin when they started 2018. They couldn't believe it. I don't think they'd seen them before, and Slow Death and all the rest of them. I mean, they were really, really quite striking. So they had an influence in their own way on 2018. Because there's a huge um, sort of thing that runs throughout 2018 of the grotesque, isn't there? Mm, you know, uh, totally, yeah. The mutants <clears throat> in Judge Dredd, you know, across all the strips. And that, that was something that you hadn't really seen before. You know, if you yeah. did have, you know, you, you used uh, Dandera as an example of the archetype. And there you've got, you know, the, the, the trees are alien, but it's sort of exaggerated human features, isn't it? Rather yeah. than them being grotesque monsters. They, they've still got very sort of clear humanoid. And, and this is a kind of an in, inverse snobbery as well. I, I do remember read, reading years later, but I hadn't realised it at the time. I knew there was a kind of... I, I knew that people up there didn't like the Eagle, because it's always been referred to as the greatest British comic of all time. And that. The Eagle had great strips in it, but when I was a kid, I occasionally saw a copy from a cousin, and I absolutely hated it. <laughs> I hated its middle-class, mealy-mouth kind of... 
scout holiday atmosphere <laughs> and all this stuff that was good for you. You had to kind of swallow all this crap, you know, about Winston <laughs> Churchill to get to Heros of Spartan, you know. You couldn't have one without the other. It was, uh, and I remember IPC, or Fleetway hated it, and I think it's because um, comics at Fleetway and Amalgamated Press, those companies, D- DC Thompson to Scotland, are incredibly working class. And there's a real class war kind of thing going on there. There's no middle class atmosphere at all up there. All, and I think this is, there's a great book called um, uh, about film fun by, um, I think it's Graham King and Ron Saxby. It's a marvellous book because what it explains, film fun began in the 1920s and it actually created this idea of a, um, kind of back alleys, all those familiar things in British comics of, kind of gas lamps and stripy, uh, stripy lighthouses and the, the seaside holidays and, and Laurel and Hardy strips which set in Britain with them being hard up but then kind of finding a £50 note and picking up a couple of dolly birds and going for a big <laughs> slap up mill and they explain the origin of the slap up mill as well which is grew out of these strips are written a lot by East End guys working class guys who knew what it was like to be hungry as kids and the idea that kids have, would have then as a fantasy was too much food to eat. Yeah. That would be an incredible fantasy. And you think, well, that's really moving, isn't it? Because yeah. I grew up with all these kind of piles of cow pies and kind of pyramids <laughs> of food and lashings of ginger pop and all that stuff. It was quite sausage ludicrous. Sausage usually. Like yeah, a, a great, pyramid of yeah. sausage mash with like 25 <laughs> sausages sticking out of it. Grand belly kids at the end with full up, you know, sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, but I, I, I think that informed all the comic. I mean, Trying to think back to the people that came into the office, the creators, it was all working class. I think it was all working class, all ex-military, very little middle class atmosphere. Um, and they were, they were, oh, maybe there was a bit of chip on the shoulder about the eagle. You know, it was held up as the pinnacle, you know. But, yeah, I, I, I'm, on, I'm on their side a bit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about sort of different culture influences coming in and changing comics. You were saying about DC coming over to England to recruit their next wave of creators. That was, uh, you know, what yes. you did after 2008, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was... Um, t- 2008 was getting reviewed in American uh, fanzines. And I think it might have been someone like Mike Gold at First Comics. Uh, he started to notice what was going on. And then uh, Len Wein and Marv Wolfman they noticed and they were kind of picking up British stuff and the obvious the first person to, to really make it was Brian Bolland because he had an obvious American style you know they could obviously place him and then Dave Gibbons and that's for the same reason I, I would guess you know they, they had this history of loving DC comics a style that was fit right in by the time they got around to me <laughs> it, it was it was well what would you like to do and I just gave him a list of things and I said, but haven't you got anything we still publish? You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was all Metal Men and Spectre and uh, Black Hawks, all these, all these strips I, I'd like to have done. Um, so I wasn't really a natural fit. But we, we did a, a book called Metal Zoic, which was more like a continuation of our 2000 AD work in Pat Mills. So that was sort of fun. Um, but I never fit comfortably into the mainstream American thing. There's nowhere from There was nowhere... To put me, <laughs> <laughs> we well, did some uh, Mega Men uh, strips. Which, I did, yeah. Uh, you know, it's a good stuff. Because, but, stuff, you know, yeah. it's aliens, so you know yeah. you can sort of cut loose a bit. And yeah. then, um, you know, notoriously, you did the uh, Green Lantern. 
yes. uh, annual, which yeah. you know is uh, the story's tigers, isn't it? Yes, and it's uh, yeah, more story. Yeah. Uh, you know, a remarkable strip for a number of reasons. I mean, there's what I imagine Alan thought of as like a, a throwaway element where he talks about the Blackest Night that then 25 years later they get pretty much 18 months of stories <laughs> out of wildly extrapolating on what that could mean. But uh, the thing that I found really amusing when I was just reading about it, um, you drew the art for that story and it was sent off to be approved by the Comics Code Authority that they had they had some issues with it. Yeah, well I got a phone call from the editor, Andy Helford, and he just said we've got a problem with uh, the Tiger's story. Um, the Comic Code have a problem. I said, oh, what do I have to change? He said, nothing. I find it all unacceptable. He <laughs> 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 said, the art style is actually unacceptable for a code for. So I couldn't wait to ring up Alan and tell him I was so <laughs> pleased. Because <you know? laughs> that's the thing, there were, there were elements in the story that I think editorial knew. There's like scenes of like aliens being crucified. Yeah. Oh, was was yeah. there an element of putting that in to take it out so that it would, you know, to put in no, too much? No, no. I, all... I, I, I think we just... See, um, I think we forgot about the comics code because, <laughs> in a way, I, I remember seeing those little badges on those little uh, stamps when I was a kid. I think, oh, approved by comics code. It sounds really important, doesn't it? But when, when I was in America about a year later, I, I asked Archie Goodwin if I could um, visit the comics code. Well, actually, I asked him if I could read the comics code because I've never actually seen a copy. I've heard about it. <laughs> And he had to search the whole of DC to find one copy, <laughs> a dog-eared copy she gave me. And uh, they had a phone number on the back. And I, I said, well, I, I want to go and visit them. Because I was, I, I kind of pictured us these old ladies with rubber stamps going, well, that's okay <laughs> and that's not. But, you know, mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine who on earth does that job. What a weird job to have. Every, I mean, thousands of pages yeah, would have yeah, gone through there. And well, physically, they were looking at the actual original artwork as well. It's like a big operation, wasn't yeah. it? Um, I rang up and uh, got this kind of. They obviously don't get many phone calls. Um, you know, <laughs> what, do you, what do you want? You know, uh, so I'm a British artist just visiting in New York, and we really like. To, I'm really interested in the comics code, and I'd like to come visit the office. There's nothing to see here. There's nothing to see. Here. <laughs> 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 My dream was shattered. You know, I've no. But I, from what little I know, it's financed by Archie Comics. I think right. to protect themselves, to protect the Archie brand. Yeah. And um, I think it was more just financed. By the other companies, just I think it's just to head off any kind of uh, federal kind of <laughs> involvement. Well, it, it came out of or... the whole sort of Wortham scare of, yeah. the, of the 50s, and I think at that point it was a thing of there was a concern about distribution. If you didn't get comics code approval, certain distributors wouldn't take the books as they were seen as good. But obviously, by the time you and Alan are working on Green Lantern, this distribution's transformed in terms of how it works, and you've got the sort of yeah. direct sales system, and you've got Specialist comic shop. So, you know, in the end, uh, they put the comic out without the comics code. Or thought, and the world continues to turn. I know so. it made absolutely <laughs> no, no difference. And uh, um, it just reminded me of before I started work on two thousand. One of the samples I showed Pat Mills. <laughs> I did these um, terrible poster magazines, which I, I got offered the poster magazine, the Star Wars thing. By the way, uh, Legend Horror Classics. They were adaptations of uh, Hammer films mostly, there's a few original ones um, guy who lived near me in Stockwell did a horror magazine, I think called World of Horror uh, Canadian guy and he hit on this in the early 70s 
poster magazines were a big thing, a really big thing. Like I say, Felix Dennis made his fortune with those things and uh, in the early days. So they're all the Bruce Lee, the Kung Fu things, and uh, Olga Korbert, the gymnast, and all kinds of weird 70s stuff going on. They all had poster magazines. So we were doing horror poster magazines, but I fell foul. <laughs> I did one. I don't remember which one it was. It fell foul of something I'd even forgotten about until just now. The... Uh, as a parliamentary act against horror comics. I think it's still on the statute books. <laughs> and someone waved a copy of their Star Classics in Parliament. Saying, <laughs> and that sort of ended, ended my, my poster magazine career. <laughs> Are you working on the next one? How far you got? Stop it. You know, it's, <laughs> but it's good that you managed to uh, outrage your site on both sides of the Atlantic. Yes, yes. It's, uh, it's a, good work. A proud claim to fame. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> So after working for DC and you're running with the Comics Code Authority, you work again with uh, Pat Mills on Martial Law, yeah. which you can almost see, you know, knowing that story, you know, Martial Law is essentially about a man who goes around hunting superheroes. Was there an element of you taking your revenge on the superhero industry? No, that was very much, very much Pat, who, um, it's only because... Pat grew up with a completely different background to me. He read Biggles' books and uh, uh, oh, I love Aker Wallace and Dennis Wheatley and stuff like that, I guess. Um, but he didn't really see comics and he didn't see superhero comics. So he, he only saw them as an adult, which must be quite strange. So when he saw Green Lantern, I mean, the name alone makes almost no sense, you know, and then the look and everything about them and what he called running on one leg characters who you know? <laughs> <laughs> wrote running on one leg um, and so I was, but it's his idea we were talking about doing something because we'd done Metal Zoic and it had bombed um, so it's a huge hit in Brazil for some you know? <laughs> but, but it bombed because it came out in a weird square format at pretty much the same time as Dark Knight right. and Dark Knight just created that you know, it's Batman, it's about the, the Dark Knight format as it was known then. That was the, the big thing. And these square things that didn't fit on the on the shelves just died a death. So DC gave up on the square bound format. But we'd done that and it hadn't, hadn't worked. And we'd done um, uh, a role-playing magazine, Dice Man at IPC, which was a huge amount of work. And the returns on that were really poor. You know, it, it wasn't worth the effort. Um, so when we did martial law, it was, okay, we're going to do costume characters. <laughs> but Pat, with his, you know, he was so appalled by them. He just thought, a guy who hunts superheroes. And I said, well, don't you mean superheroes? He said, no, superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, that's a great idea. But never, I mean, the rest of us who grew up with comics, wouldn't even, it wouldn't even occur to us. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so we just took that. And because of that, that kind of period, the 87, I guess it was, 87, 88, um, Things were kind of spicing up in comics, and the epic line and always kind of create your own stuff. It was looking things were looking more interesting, and so we were kind of we, we go a bit further, we go a bit further, <laughs> and we were always going too far. On, on Mark. I mean, when I look back and when now it's been reprinted, some of it is so over the top. I'm yeah, actually quite, I'm quite startled myself. Did that? But as you say, at the same time, you had sort of. Uh, Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen yeah. which sort of flipped a lot of the ideas about what Absolutely, a superhero yeah. is and what a superhero yeah. does and what a superhero comic yeah. can show so that would have softened oh, the totally. ground for you yeah. a little bit as well yeah, yeah, yeah. it was um, but it was a huge amount of I don't say the double whammy of Dark Knight and Watchmen changed the landscape it completely changed the landscape and they were um, classy as well and obviously a lot of thought had gone into this 
and uh, production values were, were much higher. And, and we had we had a great ed editor in Dan Chichester and uh, Archie Goodwin was running the Epic line. And it was a kind of safe little corner of Marvel Comics where it was just left alone. They just did their own did their own thing. You know, it was good. It was a good time. Um, it's different now, though. <laughs> 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 well, now it's got to a point where um, it's essentially uh, with the superhero comic so much, but it's protecting the brand so that it can be turned into cartoons and films. So you can't yeah. really subvert those central characters in, in a way. You know, even things like Dark Knight. You know, using an iconic character like Batman and, and doing something so different, just I don't know, you can't really imagine it happening. Now they've got to play it safe. No, I mean, these, yeah, they become worth so much money. And uh, yeah, but I think we could do, when I was first off at America, in fact, I, you could do almost anything you wanted in a way, you just make it up as you go along. But the thing that I found totally dispiriting over the years and why I so much happier than create our own stuff was more I heard about these big meetings summit meetings held a year in advance to decide a book's you know plots and crossovers and all that um, if they'd done that in the old days you wouldn't have had Jack Kirby walking in with a silver surfer in a fantastic book which Stanley had <laughs> never even heard of or seen before it's just stuff that's just made there's something great about making it up as you go along never since we made it up as we went along we just God, you know, it caused trouble and there were problems and things, but I love that. We just kind of go off on an angle, an odd angle. And, and that's uh, the thing, it has a different energy to it then, doesn't it? As totally, opposed yeah. to, you know, the since month to nine, yeah. we know what's happening exactly, in month yeah. nine, draw yeah. the thing that's supposed to happen in month nine. But I think as there is so much money in it, as, as, uh, management actually interfere more. They have to, yeah. don't they? There's so much at stake now. And I'm really shocked when I read about American writers talking about their work being so heavily rewritten and that. Pretty quite offensive, you yeah. know. But, um, but having said that, at IPC, they'd think nothing of changing artwork, you know, chopping stuff up and that. It was very cavalier, <laughs> <laughs> their attitude to artwork. <laughs> well, obviously, now uh, the, the project that you're working on the most is The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is something that you and Alan have complete control over, pretty much, you know. You, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. not, you know. You decide what the stories are going to be, and you know you you have the freedom to explore within that world. And it's funny because it's like doing, even though it's um, generally had an American publisher as part of the part of the mix. It's a very British book. It's completely British in its in its outlook. Um, it's almost always been set in London. Most of it's been set in London. It's a kind of it's a fictional London, but it's got important bits of. We like into into our into our London, you know. It's been it's a huge amount of fun. And I enjoyed the fifties as well. That was a that was a lot of what we talked about. Magazines on bulldog clips, they're all in the black dossier. Yeah, yeah. And we just remember that. I thought, yeah, it's quite it's quite exciting then actually. Yeah, it's got a bad rep the fifties, but you know, <laughs> even though um, my mum assured me that rationing in the fifties was worse than it was in the war. <laughs> there's, there's even less on sale than it had been in the war. Uh, and it was kind of poverty stream. Then you had this kind of big burst of energy in the 60s, um, um, which was unbelievable. When I look back at it now and think, wow, it was incredible, really, because you had, you had artists, writers, poets, musicians, everybody crossed over in a way that seems different to nowadays. You know, yeah. it was all the disciplines crossed over. Everybody was influencing everybody else. And 
uh, and anything seemed possible. Anyone could do a magazine. Just just do it. That was the that was the kind of ethos. <laughs> Let's get on and do it. And fanzines as well. I, I have great respect for people who do fanzines. Um, and I don't know what the because I'm so disconnected from the uh, from the world of the internet. I don't know what the equivalent is now. I'm not sure if, if a blog is the same as a as a. Oh, it can. I mean, it, it's it, the thing. It, it, the great thing about the internet is it can be whatever you want it to be. I mean, you know, what we do is essentially a radio show. Right. We don't need a transmitter. We don't need a mixing desk. It's we not on, need... though. No, of course not. could do a radio fanzine in my day. <laughs> but you see, the thing is, uh, you know, as you say, the downside is we're not on a radio station. But the upside of doing this is, um, you know, it's still a point now where we say to people, we're doing this thing, and they're like, oh, when can I listen to it? And you're like, whenever you like. Because it's there. Right, it's like true. Yeah, on the, yeah. So you, yeah. whenever you want to, you can go and get it. So that's yeah. and yeah, blogs. You know, you you do get people who just write about a particular TV show they like, or a film series right. they like, or comics they like, and so yeah, they're still there. And you know, again, it is the democratization of of the whole thing where you know right. it's still not because uh, you you need a computer and internet access and whatnot. So it's still not quite as as reasonable as you know getting your your bits of paper and typing it out and drawing it and photocopying it, but. Right. Yeah, the, the, I think the impulse is still out there to, to celebrate things that you love, and that's the important thing. How did the uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen come about? Uh, well, it, how I heard about it was via a comic shop. It was a comic showcase just down in Trancross Road where uh, Paul Hudson used to run it. Um, he just mentioned to me one day, oh, I hear you're doing a new project with Alan Moore. I hadn't spoken to Alan for... <laughs> months you know so, <laughs> so, so, so I heard about it you know via that route by gossip, by gossip. but I just had reason I had a reason to, to ring Alan anyway about something else and at the end of a conversation he was like oh I thought something you might be interested in and he went this fantastic idea and I said yeah I'd definitely like to do that and it kind of it just happened there was just a at that point there was no script there was a synopsis quite a detailed synopsis and uh, but the core concept so strong isn't it it's such a great it's idea. such a great idea yeah it, it, it's because yeah all these characters do do feed into the pulp characters and the, the superhero characters so you can see a natural progression and it, but the more we got talking about it as we were working on it introducing other fictions just seemed kind of fun as well but by god it's a colossal amount of work <laughs> when, when you go through the decades you know and and a lot of work evading um Problems as well. Of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it gets more problematic. But uh, we, we, we were thinking, I suppose it was thinking of it as well, like, because we grew up with Mad, when you see things like, I don't know, uh, the Mad Comic Opera, which you probably couldn't do nowadays, and <laughs> possibly, you know, um, if all these characters, all these fictional characters staying next to each other, there's something very pleasing about them yeah. all interacting. Um, or, um, I suppose, Family Guy. Family Guy still, I mean, yeah. I've, I've seen. Charlie Brown is a, a crackhead, you know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I don't quite know how that works. I'm sure we couldn't do it, but you know, it's, um, <laughs> parody. It's yeah, parody, I guess. Parody, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, grab that. And, and uh, I, I think, I mean, originally, when I cast my mind back, it was just going to be one serial, as opposed to one serial. But then that begat the second serial, and then the Black Dossier was just oh something, a tiny little idea that grew into a big big thing and so it's just got bigger and bigger and Alan could somehow hold all of these different dynasties in his head so without referring to notes which is well it's a very simple right idea to sort of going what if these characters from fiction teamed up to fight other yeah. characters from fiction 
But then, as you say, with the end of like the second series and Black Dossier, it's suddenly a thing of, what if all of the characters from fiction ever <laughs> <laughs> were connected with all the characters from fiction ever? And you're like, right, okay, this is, you know. And it is just, uh, it's quite awe-inspiring to sort of think about and just consider, let alone when you're reading it. I mean, it's yeah, just overwhelming. You know, to you know, Jess Nevins, I think, has done the world a great service in his his annotations, where and and drawn in so many. Oh, you absolutely! I've forgotten that actually. Like Jess, there's a sort of credit actually. When we saw the first book he did, we looked at it. God, there's a lot. Of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't what quite realise it's insane. <laughs> yeah. But then the idea, but, but what I know, there's been cri- criticisms as well of somehow that we might just be doing a, like a where's where's Wally book for. People know it all or something, but the idea has always been it, does, it doesn't matter if you don't recognize a shop front, a shop name, or a newspaper title is from a, a, an old movie or something. It doesn't actually matter, it is just texture, really. Yeah, yeah, but if you do, it is quite funny. But yeah, there's references to old Bob Monkhouse movies. <laughs> I've, I've watched an awful lot of old British movies to get <laughs> sweet rappers and things, you know, <laughs> just one fictional toothpaste thing which I could put on a hoarding or something. But well, uh, it's worth it. whiskey galore, I think. Uh, there's a dream, dream toothpaste. It's uh, stuff from all, I'm all right, Jack, and there's it's loads, it's loads of it. But it's fun. It's actually fun. And as you say, it's not a case of you know the story no, and the characters there. But yeah. you know, if you want to sort of look in the yeah. corner, it's just the bonus. Yeah, isn't that, it? that was always the, the, the premise, and, and we we enjoy it. But it's, like I say, it's uh, it is a lot of work. It is a lot. Of, it's kind of it is a bit mental. In fact, it's very mental. <laughs> is the legal side of it, um, is it problematic? Because you don't want to spend sort of months writing something, obviously, and illustrating something that you then have to sort of edit. Yeah, it's um, it, it's like a blindfolded man negotiating a minefield at, <laughs> at night with a stray cat roaming around as well. You know? so it, 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 it is problematic. Because a, a part of the problem is, I suppose, that if you're the age we are, when you, you grew up with Mad and those things, and, and it seemed kind of laissez-faire. But, uh, you know, it, it was fair comment on characters, and you could have you, you could do. But now, because like I said earlier, some of these things are such valuable brands yeah. that there's like armies of lawyers just looking for anything. Oh, no, no, you can't, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. So, and, but it would make the whole world joyless if no one attempted it. I mean, because <laughs> the premise of the book is we do fictional worlds. Yeah. So we've got to keep supplying the fictional <laughs> worlds and just try and, and try our best. Um, and we put a lot of work into avoiding avoiding problems. Um, and, and obviously, you get past the twenties, you're going to hit problems all the time. You know. Yeah, with the first two books, obviously, uh, it's Victorian. Is, Victorian. Yeah. So you, you know, you, you, you've you got mean, a pretty sort of free yeah. hand there. Yeah. The first two books as well. You know, just to bring things back to the core of the show. Um, both feature South London locations uh, quite prominently. Yes, they do, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. you know, once you're involved in uh, MI5 and the Secret Service, Vauxhall comes into play because of, you know, that is the location of MI5 in real life. But obviously, your take, or your and Alan's take, on the MI5 building is a lot different. It's basically a, a Freemason's fortress, isn't it? It is. I think that's a fair comment. <laughs> well, actually, I went down to the Terry Farrell building because Alan told me it's kind of interesting around there. Um, and when he said interesting, I suppose he meant it, you, you are observed all the time you're walking around that building, as I suppose you'd expect, you know, but there's loads of tourists there. 
But what I found fascinating was the cameras swivel. I was taking photos of it, and um, the cameras <laughs> all sort of swiveling. They all swivel on you. But I was noticing there were kind of fake tourist couples as well watching you, sitting on benches watching you. They're pretend tourists. And I didn't go to the, the restaurant there and told me about the spooks, the spooks saying, oh, I haven't been there yet. <laughs> <laughs> but I found it, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. It's got its own atmosphere down there. But it's quite, it was actually quite near the FedEx depot I used to use as well. <laughs> so I could drop the artwork off, you know, and, and, and be on their CCTV cameras, you know. <laughs> Were you uh, ever approached while you're photographing the building? No, so sadly not. I'd love to have been hauled in, beaten up to have a better story, you know. <laughs> Touch of extreme rendition, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and in uh, both of the first books, uh, the Thames itself is is central to the story. You know, you've got um, the sort of the airship hidden under in, in what w- we would think of as the rubble hive tunnel in the first book. Yes, and yeah, yeah, yeah. The Thames is a battleground in the second book. Yeah, well, well I, I was always interested in London, London's history before before we worked together, and it was. It was there's always opportunities to do this kind of, it's, it's, like I say, it's a fictional construct out of London, so even St Paul's is the, St Paul's of the original great model, it's not actually the, the St Paul's that was built, yeah. but it's, a, it's, it's such a, a modest difference, <laughs> <laughs> you'd have to be a real, kind of into it to notice it, and um, in the second volume, where we see um, the railway track, with uh, Moreau and the animals carrying a kind of, crate um it's a broad gauge i don't know if anyone's ever really noticed but it's a broad gauge railway it's what w- it's what should have been built actually it's much more comfortable with a big broad gauge but it's more expensive but so i put in stuff like that because that's an alternate history yeah, yeah. about this broad gauge railway which is much more comfortable bigger carriages but we didn't we put in our skimpy little <laughs> narrow <laughs> gauge one um so it's stuff like that and um i had a really nice time when we did the war of the world stuff i went down to woking and which I'd never been to Woking before, and I was wandering around looking for the sand pits where the tripods are supposed to have landed, or where the Martian uh, cylinders had landed, and uh, went into this pub called it was called the Bleak House, <laughs> <laughs> and I talked to a couple of locals, and they said, "Oh yeah, mate, just go. You go over the road." And then I said, oh, that's a private house. Said, oh, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Just walk, you know, walk straight through. I don't mind. Just walk straight through. The sand pits just there. And I said, uh, if you get lost, we'll give you a lift. And I said, uh, oh, I don't have a mobile phone then. Oh, I'll take mine. You know, <laughs> what a friendly old pub, you know. <laughs> so I went over, I had a good old mooch around the sand, the sand pits. And um, yeah, I like, I like Woking. And it's uh, the Necropolis Railway used to run there from Waterloo as oh, well, yeah, yeah. carrying mm. uh, bodies down for the cemetery. And I think there's the first Muslim temple might be in Woking as well. And, no, no, I, I found the experience quite quite entire. In fact, that's a great thing about League in those days was just the, the amount of places you could kind of wander down to. And I took a trip down to Thames, which I've never done even when I was a kid. Sort of boat trip. So there's a lot of, uh, of field work that you actually do. Yeah, in terms it's, of... it all ends up looking nothing like what I was looking at. <laughs> 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 yeah, because it's just, it's just the... sort of feeling it gave me of uh, right. kind of integrated into the, into the story and an idea of space as well yeah. in terms of yeah what's yeah. where. Yeah, so that was, that was good fun. And I, Water World's one of my favourite books as a kid. I just love that. that well, book. it was, it was only so. really sort of uh, reading the second lead book that you realise, you know, where the Martians land and where they're heading, they're rampaging across South London. That's the thing, isn't yes, it? It's, that's yes. where they're heading. They sort of land south of London and they're heading towards, you know, and particularly in uh, League Volume 2, 
you know, the Thames is turned into a battlefield as well. So you've got yeah. sort of South London yep. as the battlefield, the Thames is a moat protecting North River, and obviously at the end of the book, uh, South London is actually sacrificed for the Greater Good, yes. <laughs> which must have been mm. lovely for you as a... Quite right, so. <laughs> That's what we would have expected. You know? <laughs> That's why I got a bit, kind of bit, bit OCD on that, on, on, that, on that particular one, on the research. I remember going through Water Worlds with a fine tooth comb, plotting out where every single cylinder landed and how many tripods were in each, how many got blown up or disabled, and then setting out a, a big list of all this information, <laughs> which uh, we only could only use some of it. And also there's an interesting detail we'd never got around to using, which was they brought semi-human characters with them, and they were kind of vampiric, they were feeding off these... But there was a kind of vampire thing which we just didn't have room for. Right. But it was, it was an interesting nod to uh, the Mina character, but... Um, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. I, I love the way you, I like the way we use it. I like Moreau as well. I like, yeah. <laughs> I like all the Moreau stuff. Was, that was a lot of fun. Again, Tiger Tim, because yeah. we could get Tiger. Hardly anybody would know who Tiger Tim You have to be about 100 bloody years old like I am to know who Tiger Tim <laughs> was. But he has absolutely no recognition, does he? <laughs> yeah, they're uh, great scenes as well, aren't they? Because there is something particularly disturbing about these kids' characters that have this sort of sinister <laughs> aspect to them, you know, it's Rupert the Bear and Mr. Toad, but uh, you don't want to get in that car, do you? So. I always found Rupert the Bear creepy when I was a kid. <laughs> there was something very, very creepy about that world. It, 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 was, cause it was drawn so sedately, but you've got elephant headed men and stuff. <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, and obviously, with the later League volumes, as the story expands, the sort of scope expands. So it moves away from London, really, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. in Black Dossier, we get as far as Birmingham. Right. <laughs> um, but with the later books now, uh, sort of Heart of Ice, and we've got Rose of Berlin coming soon, actually, isn't it? Yeah, just uh, just in a printed copy. And it's... Um, well, I said, she said, well, I quite fancied a holiday, actually. <laughs> 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 so I thought a bit of a... Yeah, it's a bit of, sort of polar waste and um, um, South America. South America should be nice. Nice day out, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, River of Ghosts, which you're working on now, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's it in and, South America uh, in the 70s. So. In the 70s, yeah. And of course, we've just done the Ber- Berlin, um, which is a lot of fun. Berlin is a lot of fun. We, we talked for years about doing Berlin and Paris, right. you know, but not, not got round to them because they've got all kinds of their own fictional characters. Um, but uh, yeah, we're just trying to we're just trying to make the books manageable as well because after this third Nemo book, we're going back to the final uh, League book, right? Kind of close 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 the series, but there's always possibilities of doing going backwards and forwards in time. Yeah, that's a, that's a great thing about it. But it's been it's been nice doing the Nemo Nemo's daughter because it's just a, a different angle and it feeds and. and has worked it so you can feed it back into all the other stories. You yeah. can see where it slots yeah. in. It doesn't contradict anything. Um, so it's fun. Yeah, yeah. And in Century, we have the revelation that in the world of the League, the Antichrist lives in South London. Well, who's, who's where cho- else? Whose choice was that? <laughs> where else? Could it, well, it wasn't mine. <laughs> I think Alan must have an opinion about so, South London. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was going to say, was it was it in the script? Because the, the only it. clue is obviously the street sign with the SE postcode that's obscured as well. So we don't know whereabouts in South East London, but we do know it's in South East London. It might be mentioned. Well, well 
you know, I can't say where, but there is. <laughs> you know where, but you don't. I, know, I, I, yeah. I know where the house is. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I pass it quite regularly. <laughs> and it always looks a bit creepy to me. <laughs> so it's based on a, a row of houses. Yeah, what I did is, well, I walked around and I thought, well, okay, I'm going to find. I'm going to find where I think he lives. And I think I know where it is, but if I can find a better place, I will. But I couldn't find a better place. <laughs> so I, I did. I took a load of photos of his, his street, and um, and the houses are kind of well. As you can see in the strip, you, you can probably picture. I mean, the style of a house is very particular, isn't it? Um, but I just rearranged them. I re- rearranged the, the, the street a little bit, so. No one could recognise. Probably if I won't bring the house value down or anything. <laughs> Put a blue plaque up. <laughs> we have to track it down. We have to just go street by street across South London until we find it. It's fine. <laughs> Bearing in mind the houses have been moved around. So we'll have to, we've, we've got the information now. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was going to be as easy as putting the uh, name of the road into Google. But there isn't a rune uh, place in South London. So well done. You've, <laughs> you've hidden it sufficiently. It, it, it's funny, but South London can accommodate stuff like that. Because I, I would have thought if there's anything occult happening in, anywhere in London, it's more likely to be South London <laughs> than <laughs> North. North is a bit too poncy to really accommodate <laughs> real, the real occult stuff. You know, not, I mean, they have their weekend pagans, but we have the kind of real thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know... Uh, the, the Golden Dawn were based in the Horniman Museum for uh, well Horniman House for a little while, so which was one of my favourite museums as a kid. Horniman yeah, Museum, great, I actually love that place because it was like a, a museum out of a Hollywood film or something because you had war bonnets and, and masks and spears and stuffed animals. It's <laughs> <laughs> a bit of everything. It was, it was uh, yeah, I remember it was being a treat going going to the Horniman Museum. Has it yeah, been revamped? Have you been there? Yeah, they've, 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 yeah they've done uh, great work. Yeah, there's parts of it that have been, you know, they generally add, add into it, aren't they? Like the yeah, grounds have been it, largely, right. like they right. put a farm in the, like they've got a couple of, what are they? Alpacas. Yeah, yeah. Um, up, up right up the top oh, of right, the hill right, like, right. where they've got the view awesome. and stuff and they've done up the like pavilion, Yeah, haven't they? But inside it is the same old kind of stuff. Well, it's the same collection. But right. it's just like the, yeah. oh, and the music stuff they've expanded, haven't they? As well, the music collection is improving. I, I think it, it's the not stuff much improving. I think they've just got more stuff. space, right. so they can sort of take less out of storage and put right. more on display. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, um, yeah, good luck with the new league books. We'll be uh, looking out for oh, some of the references that we won't find because they're all saying <laughs> <in> South <laughs> America. So. <laughs>